You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick old trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Kick him 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 out the door. Well. Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The good news is that if the bikey next door knocks on your door for a cup of sugar for his meth lamp, the good news is that this program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au at any time. Kelly, our wonderful producer, Kelly Whitworth, our wonderful producer will podcast the program, believe it or not. I don't know what she does. She's like a, you know, some type of sorceress. She does these things and it's up there for all eternity. So I'm pleased to be here. Look, the Radiophon's a little bit slow. We're about 40 bucks short from our total, which is very embarrassing. Now, it is the 30th of June, the end of the financial year. So if you need that much-needed tax deduction, now is the time to ring nine. Nine four one nine eight three double seven, and to donate to 3CR and push us over our $750 total. Well, once again, we have a brilliant guest. All our guests are brilliant. Kelly organises the guests. I have nothing to do with it. So, now let's see if I can get this right. We have Arini Solidus Noyce. Cheers, Joe. Thanks for having me and absolutely got it right. <laughs> Thank you, Arini. Um, what do you do about the hyphen? Do you put it when you when you um, you know do official documents, or you just put the two names? I just put the two names now. Yeah, that's pretty radical. Usually they put the hyphen in between. <laughs> I wouldn't use the word radical, but it's <laughs> it's practical. So uh, yeah, no, no, it's very radical. You know, yeah. <laughs> now we won't go down that path. Now look, this is a simple inter- chat conversation. Think of yourself in a canoe with me. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have the power. <laughs> So, I'll sit in the back. Oh, exactly, yeah. I have the panel of I see an interesting tributary. We go up the tributary. Now, a lot of people call me a lazy interviewer because I do no research on the guest. Uh, Kelly tells me at 11 o'clock and says, oh, the guest's in the coffee lounge. Would you like to come and join us? So I know nothing about you, which is good, which means I've got no preconceptions about where we're going. So we start at the very beginning. What year were you born? I was born in 88. 1988. Oh, well, you're relatively young. That's okay. That's why you've got one of those double names, isn't it? Because you were born in 88. Um, I think it was 
mainly due to my parents both wanting to keep their surnames. That's yeah. right. It was part of the women's liberation push in the 1970s that uh, once uh, women be- began to have children, they wanted to ensure... Wait, women only began having children in the 80s? No, 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 no. This is, this is the batch that went through in the 60s and 70s. Ah, I see, yeah. Yeah, they, they went through in the 60s and 70s. They had all these great <laughs> ideas, and one of the great ideas is that if I ever, ever, if I ever have any kids, no man is going to put his name on that kid's head for the rest of eternity. I mean, from my perspective, the way I, my mum would tell me about it was that she didn't want to lose her name. Um, so better to have both than to have just my mum's name or just my dad's name. Yeah. But yeah, um, my parents were both heavily involved in um, activism and the union movement in the 80s and they met in the teachers' union. And um, growing up, I always just took it as normal <laughs> For women to be able to have their name just as much as anybody else can, yeah. In the 80s and the 70s, it was a very radical position to take. Because I, I remember the period when you would have been... You, what was your father's first name? What's his first name? Phil. Phil. Well, your mother would have been known as Mrs. Phil Solidus. In she the 50s. absolutely <laughs> wouldn't have been. No, no. That's because of what had happened. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she yeah. would have been there. So there's, there's this it was a big, progression. It, yeah. yeah, it definitely was a shift and yeah. Um, yeah. I, I feel lucky to be able to have both. Wow. Very nice, very nice. Now, what's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth? What's your first memory? Jeez, that's a question. Um, I, <laughs> you put me on the spot there. Uh, I, I would love to be able to say just, you know, the seeing the light and screaming, but no, I, I, I think I have, um, you know, a couple of pretty traumatic memories from when I was quite quite young, um, but I I have a have really fond memories of growing up in Mooney Ponds and having like a really really um, good group of of very diverse friends, um, both in terms of age and and ethnicity. Um, and class as well. Like we, we all went to a public school and um, mm. I do remember some really, really fun times from being, you know, in the first years of primary school at least. Yeah. You don't remember before primary school? Um, there's, it's no, all... there's, no, there's no memory that stands out, falling off a tricycle, breaking an arm? or. Well, <laughs> it's all a bit of a blur to be honest because um, my dad passed away Right. When I was seven. So mm. anything before that is kind of a little bit blurry, blurry. for me. Right. And okay. yeah, that was um, that, that whole sort of like earliest memory thing. Mm. I guess yeah, that's, well, that's probably my first, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, well, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. So do you want to go down that path about your dad or what type of, what type of dad not, was not he? Particularly not particularly on national radio. No, but, no, fuck. but um, you don't want to say anything about him. You know? Oh, he was a he was um, he was uh, quite renowned, and I was, you know, as any any kid kid would be, um, pretty pretty excited and stoked and amazed at at him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learnt more and more about him after his death. Um, so I'd always I'd always ask mum about you know, what he did and stuff. And um, it's in the last maybe five or five or so years that I've found <clears throat> some of the journals. He, he helped 
um, create the journal for the Victorian Teachers Education Union. So I actually got to read a lot of the articles that he was writing about organising um, back then when my parents met. Um, and he was involved heavily in the environmental movement and climate change um, and brought the first climate change convention to Australia in, in the year I was born, actually, in 88. So I learned about that through one of my lecturers at uni when I started studying. So that um, was really, really awesome to be able to yeah. learn about him, um, you know, as I was growing up, even even though he'd passed away when I was a kid, yeah. Kid, yeah, so he seems, seems quite uh, an awesome human being. He was Very pretty, active. Yeah, he was very things. active and, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, and his surname was Salidas, was it? That's my mum's side. That's your mum. He was Noyce. Yeah. So what's his background? He grew up in Mildura um, right. and Anglo, settler, right. um, well, from probably a very colonial past. past. Um, he had an interesting heritage, um, but essentially, you know, lived out in, in the Mali, different parts of the Mali as a kid, met an Italian family that he lived across the road from and became like, you know, the adopted Anglo kid um, and learned Italian from a young age and then went and travelled to, to Italy to study and stuff when he turned 18. So I, I grew up going and visiting um, our family, like his side, um, out in Mildura as, a, as you know, every mm. couple of years or so. Mm. Um, but, yeah, his, his background was basically... Um, I, I guess <laughs> I think um, he was very yeah he was very interested in 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 um, in sort of working class movements right. in in education and um, yeah. and you know he became a high school teacher and ended up being buried where his first high school was because that was the the most sort of significant thing um, he felt he contributed Tripped, right yeah. and is your mum still alive. Yes, she is. So and we can't say anything bad about her. I would never. <laughs> My mum's amazing as well and a true inspiration, yeah. Would you like to say anything about her? Um, we actually caught up the other day. Um, so we, we, we're very similar, <laughs> which is good and also can be an interesting conversation. Um, but, yeah, she comes from – she was born in Zimbabwe, and we were talking recently about how it's sort of, you know, a challenging conversation to have to say that, like, she would, you know, when she was born in Zimbabwe, it was known as Rhodesia. And she was there as a non-Anglo, non-white, well, like, and in terms of how Greeks were considered back then, um, particularly in apartheid South Africa, um, but her family, my grandparents migrated from... Egypt. Uh, they were born in Cairo and Suez and um, from Cypriot and Greek parents. So it's a bit of a long story. Um, but her history is, is one of like pretty, pretty consistent um, migration. And in these, in like these days, as understandings of it would be particularly my great grandparents, refugees, and my grandparents as well. Um, so a lot of the work that she's done for the rest of her life has been to talk about difference, ethnicity, migration and diaspora 
um, in terms of how that's affected her life in Melbourne and in, in obviously in Zimbabwe in the, mm. in the apartheid. That's right. I think, I think people forget that uh, post the Armenian genocide, there was a Greek genocide before independence in the 19, early 1920s, and that's where your grandparents would have come from. We had a guest here about two years ago, Terry Stavridos, Terry Stavridos, and he has written about this period extensively. And, uh, you know, over a, you know, over a two to three million people, the Greeks were dispossessed and tens of thousands were killed. So obviously, you know, they are scattered to all points of the universe, including Australia in the 1920s, and that's why we've got a... You know, Greek heritage that goes back to the 1920s here. Yeah, I, I, I wish I knew more about it, to be honest, about the history. Um, I know parts from, from my family um, and it's also, you know, obviously heavily influenced by the fact that they were from, like, Cyprus and close to Cyprus um, in Kassel so it's, like, heavily influenced by the occupation. But that said, like, I, I've, I've not... I, I don't know if I would... The word genocide is like a particularly um, used word in my understanding of it and um, I think absolutely dispossession and, you know, the movement of people and the oppression of people. But like the word genocide I think needs – like I would use that for very, very specific. Yeah, it's um, been redefined. It's been redefined and you've got, you know, you've got cultural, social. It's redefined. It's about – basically denying people their birthright. It doesn't have to be physical elimination. Mm, and that's mm. what they are. if you look at genocide studies, so it shows but let's move on. Public school in Mooney Ponds. Yeah, it was great. I, I love Mooney Ponds. <laughs> Tell me about what it was like. I haven't been back for a while and it's definitely changed. Um, oh, there's still a few old pockets. I go yeah. there, I, I go there occasionally to see some uh, elderly patients and uh, it ha- there are pockets that haven't been gentrified or redeveloped. Yeah, it's, I, I'm glad to hear it. I think gentrification has definitely picked up um, a huge amount. So it's always a problem. But, um, yeah, it was really great. I don't really remember it being a, a middle-class neighbourhood, I guess. Um, everyone, whenever I say I grew up in Mooney Ponds, they're like, oh, that's so middle-class. And I'm like, yeah, no, I guess no, it, it is. It was not middle-class when you grew up. It wasn't. I don't think so. It wasn't. It I wasn't. mean, that's not my remembering no, of it. Yeah, no, but no. nonetheless. Um, I mean, I've been familiar with Mooney Ponds since the um, mid-'70s, and it was not middle-class, I can assure you, when you were growing up. It wasn't. It wasn't until about the nineteen late 1990s that that happened. I think, you know, I still had some pretty middle-class standard things. <laughs> like um, I studied piano from some neighbours across the road. Um, like I grew up with a really, really, really awesome sort of street dynamic where like everyone on the street knew each other and would babysit for each other and um, had amazing like skills. Like, you know, we had a, a potter who was like an amazing made amazing pottery um and I used to go and stay there and she taught me how to like use a pottery wheel and stuff that was really amazing and um our next door neighbors were um you know played played and taught piano so that was a pretty big um exciting thing for me and did the elderly folks sit in chairs in the front of the arts and watch it all (laughs) um (laughs) 
It's yeah. It, that, no, to, no? Be, to be honest, no, no they no, didn't. They, they didn't. didn't. But but you'd always yeah. go over. Like you yeah. could always just go visit, and yeah. um, oh. all the kids on the street grew up knowing each other and stuff. So it was really a really really awesome environment. And we had like kind of street party vibes, um, mm. Mm. you know. And yeah, that was that was a really really memorable like good memories um, growing up there. I don't think taking piano lessons from a neighbour would be middle class. <laughs> you know, it's, it's aspirational. It's not middle class. <laughs> Learning music, I don't believe, is a middle class True. Concept, we deserve you know. everything. Exactly. You deserve everything. That's it. Every human being deserves everything. I remember years ago, I think it was in the early 60s, when I had a developed an interest in anarchism, this old anarchist said to me, you know, the difference between us and the communists is we want everybody to have a Mercedes Benz. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, do you want to identify the school? Um, sure. Yeah. I, the I, primary school, yeah. Yeah, uh, Mooney Ponds West. Yeah, and, and what type of education do you think you had there? Very much a creative one. Um, it was sort of like a quasi-Steiner school model um, and we had mixed grades and um, – yeah, I, it 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 was very much like we we did some incredible classes. I still remember where we had to like play out being a village, and you all had a table. Like you'd be put off into groups of four in the whole like in the whole class, and you'd, it's basically like playing Monopoly, but like the pre edition, you know. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to barter and trade and have your have your like farmland mm-hmm. with a group of people. And things got really interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was really like some some sort of like survival mode um, ways of like thinking, I guess. Um, if you if you can think of the time when you first played Monopoly, it had that kind of feeling for me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, lots of those kinds of life skill development things. We had a lot of teachers there who were all in the union together and who all – modelled their style of teaching from, like, a very progressive 70s, um, you know, methodology that was about teaching people how to think. Um, so, yeah, I, I still, like, feel pretty lucky to have that upbringing um, and an understanding of that methodology, I think, is integral to to um, mm. developing a better community, yeah. You, you, have you kept any friends from that period? It's been, it feels like a different lifetime. Um, I still stay in touch with a few folks that I grew up with from from there. Yeah. Um, but I can't say that I'm like tight with folks no. from, from well, primary school, unfortunately. Well, you know, some people are and some people are. Yeah, aren't. true, I true. can't remember one name, to be honest. But, <laughs> but you know, that's what happens with megalomaniacs. We, we forget about everybody else. Obviously, you're a integrated, uh, real human being compared to myself. So that's the way it goes. So uh, where does a young person who's finished primary school, where did you go to secondary college? Uh, we moved house, so I ended up going to McKinnon and um, McKinnon. Yeah, McKinnon. Long way. Yeah, all the way near Bentley from Mooney Ponds. Now you're middle class. Yeah, this was a big <laughs> shift. Yeah, yeah. I um I chose to go there because I was um, wanting to do music, so I auditioned because we were out of the zone. Right. But I um yeah enrolled as uh, 
hoping that I could get in based on needing, like needing to be there for my, for my music. Um, and I was lucky that I did. But so, yeah, it was so, a very, so, so, very so different. So your mum relocated. Are there any other kids in the family? God, this is such a personal interview. It really is. Um, I do have, I do have an, a brother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't have to speak about him, but you know, we, we have all types. You know, look, every family's got its problems. Don't worry, that's normal. Oh, no problems. <laughs> no no problems. problems with your brother. Good. No, it's more just like not the standard interview. You well, know, no, no, but this, it's, is, it's, this, this is fun. I mean, the, the, well, the whole purpose you should of be this. lying on a long armchair or something at this point. Well, shouldn't I'll give you a bill at the end. I've got an item <laughs> number for it, but. Now, the thing is, what we want to show on the program, and as I said, it's been going seven or eight years, is we want to show how people with radical tendencies come from different backgrounds, basically, and we want to show people how people develop. And uh, it, you may think it's a personal interview, but I really haven't dug deeply compared to a lot of other people because I can see you're a bit sensitive in some areas and I've kept away from it. You know, oh, I, 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 have been, I have been nice to you. No, I appreciate getting the context. I mean, yeah, personal is political. Um, yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think it's a, yeah. I mean, where you've been is what's shaped you. For sure, for you sure. Know, you know, yeah. it's not just your parents that shape you. As you said, it's your community, the people you interact with, the schools you go to, ideas come and go. Hmm. So your whole family shifted to McKinnon because of your musical... Oh, not because of me. My no. mum was teaching at Monash right. um, and it was getting a bit much to travel from Mooney Ponds to Monash every, right. every day. Um, and we needed a bit of a shift after, you know, after yeah. uh, Dad had died. So, um, yeah, it was a very big shift for all of us, I think, um, mm. being in a totally different area and um, a school that was far more modelled on. I think the motto is striving for excellence, quote unquote. Um, so it was a bit different to, to growing up with a, a more sense of like um, – you know what I described earlier about about Mooney Ponds, um, and that and it was very very pressurised into like getting that good enter score or what's now called ATAR and yep. getting that mm. perfect bell curve of students with their perfect right. <laughs> perfect um you oh, know so, so this is one scoring. of the, this was one of the more um what do they call them one of the selective public schools absolutely yeah. The selective yeah yeah so what can you tell me about this audition it sounds quite interesting here you are your whole future is at stake and you go in your audition it, sorry that was the wrong word to use um i didn't from memory i didn't need to audition in playing music i needed to provide like a resume a resume right yeah i think uh, that's from memory but yeah. to be honest don't quote me on it um <laughs> but yeah it it like going into that school was um like my mum ended up doing a research book on it because, like, she, she, I helped her find kids who I went to school with, who I was like either who were years above me or years below me or in the same age, um, to interview based on like just trying to figure out <laughs> what it does to kids to be put into that much pressure. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, um, I had had it in mind that I was there to study music and was lucky enough to get some really, really great music teachers um, and English teachers as well. They were awesome. Um, and, yeah, I just, like, was doing that to, to get into into a uni course where I could study music more. Right. Did, uh, did it come to pass that you actually studied music after you left high school? I did, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I ended up taking it in a different direction. I'd done classical um, but my uncle had 
taught me blues from like as soon as I picked up classical. Oh, the devil's music. <laughs> the devil's music from classical to blues. Well, it was literally the same like within the, within the first couple of years that I started playing music, I like, started learning piano. Um, my uncle made sure that I started learning blues as well, and yeah. I'm so thankful for it. So I grew up playing thankful. Dr. John. Yeah, thankful. it was brilliant. Oh. And Professor Longhair was like an absolute idol. You realise he radicalised you. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, this for is sure. this is not good. This is not good. No, the devil's was, music. It was give great. it a young woman. Give it. It was oh. a young. A, well, look, I <laughs> I am so thankful for it, and um, it got me through a lot. It was like a really great way to to get home from a, like, traumatic day at school <laughs> and just, like, belt out um, blues. Um, so that was that was what I ended up studying at uni. I went and did a jazz course right. instead of classical, mm. um, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> but I kind of wanted to make sure I studied arts at the same time so that I still had stuff to sort of express, if that makes sense. So yeah. studying something... Um, like the content I, I wanted to, I went in to do philosophy and political theory and wanted to learn more about the world, but um, kept the music side of things as well. Did, did you perform professionally? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. What did you think of that? I wouldn't call it professional. What, did you get paid? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Oh, well, it's professional. Sure. It's professional. We, That's we, what got, it is. we got paid. Yeah, we um, got paid. In some capacities. I mean, musicians aren't paid enough and we got paid either in drinks or, or meals or sometimes uh-huh. – like apart from a writer, sometimes we'd get a pretty, like, you'd get money, but um, it wasn't a profession in that sense that like I could live by it. Right. Um, I taught piano during like my uni years and that kind of got a little bit of bread and butter um, as well. But yeah, I enjoyed it. Did a bunch of different different bands with, with friends that I'd met through uni and... Right. Tried a few different styles. Um, Mm. And it was also like quite noticeable that there were very, very few women, um, very few women in in the course Mm. um, and in the music scene generally. Um, So it was great to see that start to shift. Um, Mm. But that said, I had one music teacher at uni level who was a woman. Mm. out of like a staff of 50 teachers, you know. So it was really noticeable and it sort of um, started to get to me a a fair bit. I had some great teachers, don't get me wrong, but, yeah, it's an incredibly masculinised, like, macho um, in a different way sort of of Mm. scene. So I I have a huge amount of respect and uh, admiration for, for the women in the Melbourne scene particularly who, like, fight against that and challenge it pretty amazingly yeah did you did you play an instrument or you're a singer or both see that's a question that i is a great example of what i'm talking about because there wasn't a single day where i would ask where someone would ask what i do and i'd say that i'm a musician and the immediate assumption was that i was a singer like i said i studied piano from when i was really little Mm, so mm, i played mm. piano yeah that's fair (laughs) um yeah yeah, it's just an interesting thing because most of the time like that's the assumption and at one level, that's understandable, but um, but yeah, breaking that assumption is, uh, I think, an important thing to do. Mm. So when you play piano and you and you do jazz, how much improvisation do you do? Uh, I can't really quantify that. 
the whole thing is my mm. first answer. Mm. But you've got a skeleton that you work with. Right. And you can change that up in lots of different ways. So it's not like there's a specific area where you're doing a solo. Right. But you're interpreting something. The the way I used to compare it was like classical is like um, classical music is like reading a versed poem, right? And interpreting that and expressing it and communicating it in a particular way that is yours. Um, jazz is more like writing, you know, freeform novel with a group of people, um, which is why, you know, Kerouac gets the like immediate reference to like the beatnik movement. But um, they're both... They're both ways of improvising and interpreting and so the band you're expressing the main bands we were with so how many players and what instruments would you be using did you have a uh, lead singer or anything um there were a few singers we I, I played shoecase for a while I did folk um, oh. we did jazz we did a mixture of like folk and jazz and Cle- I don't eclectic know. is the word is it yeah but I guess generally speaking there were maybe five. Um, between like four to six people four per band. Six. Yeah. So I just find it interesting. I mean, I know nothing about music, but I just find it interesting. You've got four to six people in a blues band or a jazz band, how they meld. That's yeah. that's the exciting thing. And part of me misses it when I think about that. Um, like you're having a conversation with a group of people and one thing that I definitely had a steep learning curve with was like listening, <laughs> which <laughs> I think I still struggle with. But um <laughs> But, yeah, because I'd played so much at home on my own playing piano, once you jump into an environment where you're playing in a group, um, you're having a conversation with people and knowing when to when to give space, um, when to listen and when to feed off other people's dialogue is one of the most exciting parts of, of playing in groups. Mm-hmm. No, no, it really amazes me. I know a little bit about jazz, my... Uh... My niece, I don't know if you remember her, Elizabeth Kavanagh. She used to be a jazz singer here in Melbourne. Oh, nice. Yeah, she's moved up to Cairns now. But, uh, yeah, that always used to fascinate me. My late wife and her used to get on really well. And, uh, you know, I just never understood that dynamic, how people could actually do it. You know, they come in together and there isn't this structured form like a classical <laughs> form or, a you know, a pop song or something and they just come together and come up with something which is really mm. exciting at the end of the day. So, did this lead anywhere? Well, I made a decision to to sort of um, – I went away. For you went away? A few years. Where did you go? I went and um, – I went and I went to New York with a couple of the people who were New playing York, in the band. New York, New York. Yeah, for it was what was meant to be a couple of months, but I don't how, how, how old were you? Twenty-one. And you went to New York of all places. Yeah, my mum had no idea why I'd want to do that. <laughs> well, I agree with her. I mean, fair, I don't, what, what year was your mum born? Uh, she was roughly born in the fifties. Yeah, well, we'd never we never want to go to the United States. They were the enemy. They were the imperialists. You <laughs> yeah. know, in our period. I mean, that was that was a badge of honour not to go to the USA. So she must was this rebellion, was it? Maybe. <laughs> nah, it was pretty. It was a pretty exciting, um, pretty exciting time, and it was a pretty like a pretty awesome opportunity because I was you know pretty excited by jazz. So I guess that was one reason why I went, and then and you know getting to experience what it was like in this like very very clearly dog eat dog <laughs> intense capitalist like 
hellhole. <laughs> but but when you go there, you get to see how people have have pushed back against that in amazing ways. Like it's got incredible um, resistance movements in every possible way you could imagine. It's not just protest movements and Occupy. It was how people like deal with the hustle and deal with the grind and live in community spaces in these cement jungle jungles, you know, like I grew up, I, I grew up, what am I talking about? I moved into a place in Williamsburg and, um, it was little Puerto Rico and everyone was on the stoops and, you know, you'd, you'd have these beautiful summer days where people would just be like playing. Uh, I say beautiful, it's like sweltering hot. But <laughs> but the way to get through that was, you know, to have a little like ice, icy pole stand or a shaved ice stand, whatever they're called. And Piragua was like the Puerto Rican um, ice drink and people would just set up stalls and and like catch up with each other and and you know the fire hydrant would go off like it was actually still <laughs> like that you know yeah. yeah yeah and there was like a guy playing you know Jesus songs right. um, on a Saturday morning and you know people would just be there on the um, mm. in the fire escape and just like it it was really inspirational that way that said it was absolutely rough like it was so apparent that there was no welfare system. It was so apparent to me as a, as someone who didn't have the right to work um, to see, like, just how broke you can get, you know? Um, so, like, I, you know, would go out and try and find a job in hospitality um, and if it paid the right amount, then I wouldn't be able to get it because I didn't have the right visa. Um, but the kitchens that I ended up working in were completely run by like Mexican, Puerto Rican, um, predominantly migrants who like just slogged it and, and cooked the best meals together before Mm. starting shifts or would pack up together and stuff. And, and, and it just, it was so apparent there was this complete underclass that were invisibilized Entire and like still can are still called you know aliens, which is just mm. you know I guess um, at least an honest description of how white America views that. But yeah, it was a real big learning curve. So how many years were you there? I was there for a little about a year, a little bit more. So you left before nine eleven. Then you'd left, haven't you? Ja- no, wait. Nine eleven happened when I was in year seven. Really, two thousand and one. No, 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 no. September 11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Didn't that happen in 2001? Yeah, yeah. yeah 2001. Yeah, 20, 20, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, what I was thinking, yeah, 2011, <laughs> 2001, that was after. Was there any impact of that when you were there? That wouldn't have, eight years later, they would have just forgotten. I wouldn't know, really, if mm. that, yeah, for that. But there was still a clear impact of the GFC because mm. um, I was there in 2010 and 2011 mm. and mm. GFC was still very, very much felt. Like most of the folks that I met there were, um, yeah, had been sacked and hadn't been able to find work, work again. Right. Um, for a lot of folks, that was mm. that was the case. You said that this is the first time that you basically experienced poverty at a real level for yourself. How did that you know, did you, did you have a place to sleep? Did you, did you, did you? I was lucky in that I'm, I knew people who were, who were already living there. There's a lot of like Melbourneites who moved to New York in that period, particularly. Mm. Um, 
I wouldn't say what I experienced was poverty. Um, I think, like, I definitely, I definitely was broke. Um, there were days where I had this like internship, working for a music um, record PR thing that was interesting to say the least. And I couldn't, I didn't have enough money to get the metro to work. Um, so I'd walk Williamsburg Bridge <laughs> to get from from Brooklyn to to Lower Manhattan, um, and that was you know like you'd you'd end up like basically the way it was working was like I'd get a check from that job and it'd go straight to my landlord who was someone who'd moved from Melbourne and she was subletting her room to me, me. Yeah. and that check would go to her because I couldn't cash it anywhere. And then she'd give me the leftovers, which was basically $200 for the month. So I (laughs) – like basically that's been roughly the ratio of what I've lived with since, um, which is 60 to 80% of my income going to to rent Mm. and not having welfare to fall back on in the States like was was noticeable – but I also got back and made this stupidly unrealistic promise to myself that I was like, I will never, ever go back on Centrelink. Now that I'm back, I've got to make sure that I just push it uphill, blah, 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 blah. And, and it's just like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Look, no one should, should do that to themselves. No, no, and also, no, like, no. The, it just shows. You've just spat on the graves of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who've struggled to create a social security net in this I've, country. I've, Anybody I've, who denies their rights. Look, I'll take that. I, I, no, serious. I'm being that's serious. A fair comment. That, that's, what, that's what we struggle for. I totally hear. And I continue to, to, to be involved in that struggle. Yes. I guess what I'm trying to describe is that, like, the impact it had on me to come back yes. from that experience in New York mm-hmm. was, like, I'd already lived on the dole before going there for a very short time, really. Mm. And the the feeling of stasis because you're in that poverty trap of being not enough money to live um, but enough money to cover your basic, basic, basic needs. Like I'm talking like having a roof um, and it's barely covering that. It, it gets you into this trap of like what felt like stasis. And a lot of that as a 21-year-old I didn't realise was the stigmatisation of it, was the extreme traps of, um, you know, compulsory like the whole reporting um, and the, 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 the rigmarole of bureaucracy um, the mutual quote unquote obligations and things like that. So I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't sort of, I'd internalized the shame of needing welfare um, rather than understanding it. Yeah, well, yeah look, uh, we, look, I'm going to have to pull you up here because um, there are certain words we don't use on this program. What's that? And I'm re- it really annoys me that activists in this field continue to use words like dull and welfare. What we've struggled for is for a social security system to provide security to people who need that security at that particular point in time. It's not welfare. It's a right. 
But re- welfare is a right. No, no, no. W- welfare is a term that it's used in a derogatory manner. But that's, yeah, we, that's we what have, I'm talking about. When, when no, we, we talk we about stigmatisation, yeah, we don't yeah, have to change yeah. the word. We have to change the stigma. No, you don't need to change the words because if in legislation it's not a welfare system, it's a social but security system. But if you don't need system. to change the words, Joe, then I can use the word welfare. Well, you can use the word welfare, but what you're doing is you are uh, promoting that concept. And that, I always use the word social security. We have a social security system in legislation. It's a two-way exercise. As a society, we provide for people in order to decrease crime, basically. That's what it is. That's what a social security system is about. That's why it's there. It's not welfare. It's something they give out to you, like, like they dole out some bread, you know, and, and tea. It's not a dole. It's not welfare. It is a right. It's a social security system. And I think activists in this area need to get... Because re- politics in this country today is about words, we use words constantly to denigrate, marginalise, ostracise people. I feel like it's often too much words. <laughs> it's often more about words than All right, let's get, back to 2000. <laughs> let's get back to 2011. You've come back. The world's your oyster. You're 21. What happens? Um, I go back and finish my degree and focus on political theory and international studies. That's a big change. No, it's kind of what I was studying in the arts anyway, mm-hmm. um, but I just like pushed to get to get through it and P's get degrees, ticked the boxes, did the essays and right. got my degree, right. which landed me kind of nowhere because it's an arts degree. Right. Um, but around that time was when Occupy started up, yep. I think, from memory, yeah. So really, really, really got in, got into that. And um, How did you get into that? I honestly don't remember how... I found out about it, um, but I remember going to the city mm-hmm. for for most days, and and that was a real, um, a real lightning moment for me to meet the people who I still look up to um, as being like formative for me in that. In you know, a, aside from my family um, and my own experience, like these people, like you know, Arnie, Viv, Marlowe, and Robbie. Um, Uncle Robbie Thorpe were like two people who, as soon as I met, were just happy to have long yarns about all of the things that I didn't know about and teach me that, you know, feeling guilty is a useless emotion and that the best thing that I could do was to, to just to just do things and just to learn things and to re- do my own research. And um, a lot of the people that I... I met through that period, uh, I still stay in touch with. Um, so that was that was where I ended up, um, I guess, on a political, like doing political activism. Um, and, and my degree didn't have any, like I had no sort of, <laughs> that was not part of it in my mind. Um, a lot of the stuff I'd studied was literally all old white men from every period up to like 100 years ago. And look, that's not to de- like to denigrate the theory, but it didn't. I, me as a as a woman, was not written in that. Mm-hmm. My way to personalize myself as part of that like historical trajectory, as anyone should be able to do, was not part of that. Um, so to live that with other people who were also not, um, you know, put in the curriculum. 
who have a lot to say and have had a lot of experience and should be like part of that trajectory in the narrative um, was really, you know, it, it, it made it more personal. How has that changed your personal trajectory over the last uh, decade or so? Because you can make it about, like once you hear about someone's actual life, um, what's what's kind of like what their specific situation might be in the exact moment, um, what people's personal situations are, that becomes far less theoretical, you know? Yeah. And I don't think theory... In, in, a pra- in a practical sense, how did that change your life? Because obviously this was a defining moment for you as an activist, the Occupy movement and your involvement in that. Obviously you've got this degree which is useless. You've got all this experience. What type of things you've been, have you been doing since? Um, so obviously in the last year or so the pandemic hit and um, for for the few years after Occupy – a lot of the work I was doing was around um, different different um, movements in in the sort of anti-capitalist and decolonizing space. Um, one of those things was obviously Jaburong Embassy, and the more that I looked into, like learning, the more that I was there and understanding sort of the the Jaburong struggle and the struggle for land rights and the struggle for like a home place um was kind of like where I was at and then COVID hit um and it became a very like it became an issue at home like it became an issue in my home and everybody else's home um to be able to stay in in those homes when work had run out when people had been sacked when like everything was in complete crisis so um this petition put forward by by um the IWW in Melbourne, I obviously saw that come up and um, immediately joined in in the in the rent and mortgage strike. And I guess that's where I've that's where I've been organising since. I've been involved in the formation and uh, the the continued work of the Renters and Housing Union with a bunch of folks who I am so lucky to call my comrades um, who've been at it ever since day one of that rent strike in March of last year. Can you explain what the rent strike is about? Not just practically, but what's the political, um, well, the ideological basis behind it? Because obviously it's got a long history of rent strikes. Yeah, it's got a huge history. And it has a particularly interesting history in Australia as well. Like in that first part of uh, March of last year, looking at the unemployed workers movement, um, and seeing yet another period where we had a depression, a global depression and a global pandemic <laughs> and um, how that how that had not much, not much at all has changed. And when you say the Social Security, that act was basically set off because of the strike, uh, the rent strikes and the locking up landlords that the unemployed workers movement uh, and the union movement in some parts, like the anarchists had a huge amount to do with that and the Wobblies um, in the in the 20s and 30s in Australia, led to the first national housing policy and the Social Security Act in 1948 and a few other things that, that meant that people weren't literally in a feudal mm. city society 
Um, and so we were seeing a repeat of that and we've lost a lot of the protections in the Social Securities Act. We've lost a lot of protections about the right to the right to have a decent wage. Like we've, there, there's been some differences, obviously, um, in terms of just how bad it was in the 30s and, and where we are now. And that has been like quite noticeable in, in, in like certain wages. Um, but we're still very, very much in a system where you either have and you own that or you don't and you're renting that at a higher and higher price. Mm. So Rahu, that's the organisation, that's the T-shirt you've got on. Yes. I've noticed the Rahu T-shirt. Obviously, <laughs> we're very proud to uh, have it there. Could you tell us about Rahu, how they're organised and uh, what they intend to do and whether they intend to fold or continue and be the boo under the saddle? I've got no idea of folding. That's oh, well, well, that's what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> what happens is you have a crisis, organisations start, and then they disappear. Sure, yeah. yeah. And we did form out of a crisis. Mm. Uh, so we unionised in May of last year. We had our one-year birthday. Unionised. Unionised. What does that mean? We had local meetings in every area as part mm. of the rent strike, mm-hmm. and each local group voted to unionise and out of all of those groups, we formed the Renters and Housing Union in May of last year and we had our one-year birthday in May of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Good mum to have a birthday. It was great. We, <laughs> we did. We um, we did unionise, I think it was May 1st, yes, or tried right. to get it as close yeah. enough to that date. You realise you realize that anarchists here in Melbourne have always had a love for May 1st? Of course, because, and because, rightly so. Uh, you, know the first, you know about the first anarchist organisation, the Melbourne Anarchist Club? I wouldn't call it the first, but... It was. Not that one. I'm talking about the real Melbourne Anarchist ah, Club. Ah, I see. Formed on the 1st of May, 1886. And they formed on the 1st of May, 1886 in Melbourne as a call from the Federation of uh, Canadian and United States Trade Unions to make the 1st of... In, not in 1884, a day of international protest for workers' rights. So the anarchists in Melbourne have a... Well, in Australia, because it was the first anarchist organisation in Australia, have this continued relationship with the 1st of May. Mm. So it's interesting that you've continued that relationship and Rahu <laughs> was, had its, was formed on the 1st of May. Yeah, well, that's, that's <laughs> nice. I appreciate that. We, we, um, we generally... I'm sure, you knew, I'm sure the older people in the organisation, the older IWW members knew all that and, and they uh, picked that day for that particular reason. That's a. Re- I actually didn't know about that, but I mean, obviously, the first of May rings pretty, you know, yeah. pretty powerfully um, internationally and in yeah. terms of our record. Um, it wasn't until eighteen eighty nine that the uh, that the first of May became international. It was so on the first of May, eighteen eighty six. Five people here in Melbourne who just find themselves of anarchists formed the first Melbourne Anarchist Club. Right. And interestingly, when you're talking about depressions and that. They had the same problems in the 1890s. There was a huge depression. Marvellous Melbourne became terrible Melbourne and there was no social security system. And how do you think the ruling classes solved their unemployment problem because there were riots and protests and things? In the 1890s? Yep. I can't say I know. Well, what they did is, and this is quite fascinating, is they opened up the land to occupation. They offered every unemployed person five acres of land, as long as they moved to the Dandenong Ranges or French Island or some out-of-the-way place from Melbourne and stayed there. It's interesting. It sounds very, very part of the colony. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. what's happened yeah. throughout 
throughout yeah. Australia's, yeah. like white Australia's No, there's a, there's a lot of history which people forget. And the thing is things, as you said, things come and continue and we forget and we recreate the wheel. Yeah, but Rahu sounds an excellent organisation. So what, 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 what do you think, what would you like to do in the next 12 months? Well, we want to make sure that we can be, like we have a strong foundation of people in local areas who know each other, who know their neighbours, who can actually collectivise their individual struggles, our individual struggles, um, whether it's being sent another rent increase, um, whether it's being evicted from a house that you've lived in for 29 years, whether it's another block of apartments that are now being sold instead of becoming public housing. Um, so try to make sure that like, we collectivise our struggle. And it's kind of difficult to do that when you've got a single tenancy and a contract with you and your landlord and everybody in your house has a similar contract but it's still this kind of, um, you know, legal position of being partly and wholly responsible um, and it keeps us severed, like it keeps us divided. So what I, what we all would really like to see happen and while we still are young, we're going to try and make sure that we can form strong foundations of people who are ready to fight together and who understand their rights um, well so that they can they can share that with others because we've got a huge huge fight ahead of us um australia has got an insane um relationship to property and it's integrally linked to our economy in a way that will not sustain society it will not sustain our ability to 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 have a place to live um and just just yesterday um you know People are being evicted. Agents are then setting the rent by $250 a week more. And it's happening in Queensland. It's happening in Melbourne. It's happening everywhere. And they keep getting away with it because the government knows that they can just rely on that as their ability to have the economy propped up. Mm. And that's going to cave. And it is caving for people. Um, And if we don't act fast... Um, it's going to cave for, and it is caving for more and more people. So we we need to see a huge um, regulation into that. We want to see, like, at, at that government level, um, some stronger measures that actually ensure that people have basic rights of shelter and affordable situations of living. It's their responsibility to provide that publicly, like to be owned publicly, but on the local level as well, we want to see people turn out for each other, and they are more and more now um, to be able to like it's in our it's at our doorstep. So to be there for each other at our doorstep um, is 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 where we're at now, and we'll, where we'll continue mm. to be. If people are interested in Rahu, and I'm sure they they are, are there any contact points? Absolutely, Rahu.org.au. R-A-H-U.org. That's it. You haven't got another. You haven't got a phone number or something, because some people who listen to this program are not interested in the social media. That's our website, so yeah. rahu.org.au. Um, you can also hit us up on social media, Rah Union. Mm. Uh, you can also email us at organise at rahu.org.au, and that's with an S E, obviously, mm. not not the Americanized version. Yes, but organise uh, at rahu.org.au. Yeah, obviously, you lost that debate. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know we were having one. <laughs> no, I mean the debate about whether it's an S or a Z oh. uh, yeah, in the organisation. 
Now, I understand that you've uh, wandered into 3CR in a past life. Is that correct? I used to um, I used to do the sewer, one of the sewer shows with Did the you? Wobblies. Did you? The yeah. RWW, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who were your co-hosts? Tilda, who I think is still doing it, and... Um, Jason. Right. And, and how long did you do that for? Jeez, I honestly don't remember how long, but it, uh, it wouldn't have been more than a year. A year. But yeah. I did a, a little bit here and there on uh, a couple of shows. It's uh, nice to be back in the studio. Have you ever thought of Rahu um, applying for a f- affiliation to 3CR? Because we're always looking for we radical affiliates. You are. We are. We you are have, a sponsor. You have, you, you've, you've, been, you've applied. Yes. Good. Yeah. All right. I better make sure we don't blackball you. That's all. <laughs> no, I'm sure we won't. No, we'd absolutely, yeah. absolutely love being being yeah. um, a supporter of, of 3CR. It's a, an integral part of our well, community. It would be, be a great way for people to interact with you because I, I, I do think a real over-reliance on social media and the internet is is a positive, but it's also a negative. You really need a phone number or something that people can ring you up on, You know, even if it's an answering you don't answer the phone, you just ask them to leave a message because there's a lot of people who, especially in your area, that don't use social media. You know, they just don't, you know. But that's just an old man just that's true. Giving, we have you to uns- invest giving you giving you giving you unsolicited we have, we have advice. We have thought about it. We have <laughs> thought about it. It's just a matter of um yeah, yeah. setting yeah. setting that up, but but we are contactable in a few different ways yeah. and Yeah, and I'm sure you are. Through the yeah. website you can hit us up yeah. with our contact yeah. info. Look, look, I'd like to apologise for dragging you through these last 56 minutes. Oh, it's Obviously, been, It's been a blast, Joe. I've loved it. It's been, it's been really, really awesome. I've not had an interview like this before in my life, so thank you for the experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm being serious. I, I mean, am too. I mean, because, you know, I kind of did the old man trick and said, you're not doing that right. You're not using the term welfare, blah, blah, blah. And I could I see mean, that. I mean, I've got to say I'm shocked at that. I, I really am. <laughs> Um, but you know, it, I, I think we're I think we're in vast agreement for uh, in the broader sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, all I can say, it's a pleasure having you on the program. It's a pleasure you coming back from the United States. They're lost again. <laughs> and all I can say is, sooner or later, you'll get some traction from that degree. When I got my doctorate of medicine, oh, you oh yeah, when I got my doctorate of medicine, I got this fancy coat and a fancy cap and I used it for my daughter's for fourth birthday party about 30 years ago and it went really well with all the other kitties that came. I look like Santa Claus. Oh, so awesome. you will you will get some positive out of it, all that effort. Thank you, Kelly. And uh, thank you for podcasting this great program and uh, thank you very much. And if you know anybody else who wants to be grilled, I'm happy <laughs> I'm happy to grill them. All the best. Cheers, Joe. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. The Sewer Show. Squatters and unwaged airwaves. Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.